Welcome to the podcast of Christchurch Glazerville Sermon Seasonings. It's where we get to look uh, a little bit more deeply at the passage that we looked at on the Sunday. My name's David Mears. And I'm Mandy Curley. On Sunday, we turned to Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35, and saw Jesus continue to heal, cast out demons, and to teach. The crowds gathered around him. Jesus even appointed 12 to preach and have authority to drive out demons. On Sunday morning, our mission director, Andrew Levy, preached for us, while in the evening it was his apprentice Henry's turn, and we saw from God's word three possible responses to Jesus' actions. Either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. We wrestled with the idea of Jesus' remarkable power and saw in particular that he is the remarkable Son of God. It's our pleasure to welcome to the pod today both Andrew and Henry. Thanks for having us on. Hello. Well, it's great that you could could be here and we very much enjoyed what you brought to us on on Sunday. It's a fascinating passage. Um, Now, as most of the listeners would know, what we like to do is we like to explore actually how the Bible is put together and how the the books of the Bible are crafted. And so, you know, as you guys journeyed through the bulk of of chapter 3, uh, what are some of the things that um, you noticed on your way through about the way Mark structures his gospel? What are some of the things that you, you observe that might be helpful for us to know about? Yeah, one of the joyful things that we had this week that was a little different for me is normally when I'm given a sermon, I get to preach uh, every week uh, and at both services. And uh, this uh, last week we had Henry doing the evening service and I did the morning service as well. So I actually had a... Uh, uh, a co-author, a friend with me to be able to bounce ideas off. And actually, uh, uh, even though he is uh, one of our apprentices, uh, I find uh, Henry to be a man who is uh, thoughtful and very godly. And uh, I valued a lot of the friendship and fellowship that we had in writing it. So that was a joyful thing. It was a lot of things I got to learn from uh, Henry. Um, hopefully, I taught him a few things too. And we got to, uh, we, we got to bounce the ideas off each other through the week. Yeah, it was really valuable as well. So one of the things we saw very early on was uh, in the passage that we had, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to uh, 35, um, was this idea of son kept coming up. Uh, and that was the first point where we started to talk about how did the four different episodes kind of fit together? The four being where Jesus is uh, doing a lot of healing and uh, exercises the demons. And then there's the appointing of the twelve. And then there's the uh, the family that arrives on the scene, and it's mixed with the uh, Pharisees mm. and what they say there uh, as well. And so, uh, how how do these um, four different episodes, so to speak, fit together? And we saw quite quickly as interesting that um, there's the uh, reference to Jesus being the Son of God coming out of the uh, demons' um, our mouths. The the family's looking for their son as well. And then the uh, Pharisees talk about. Uh, Jesus um, maybe being possessed by the the or the prince of demons, which prince has a, a, a sonly kind of uh, reference to it as well, and that was kind of our first step just in, in our conversations about uh, what what could be one of the key themes in the passage. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really interesting to look at all of that um, playthrough of of the son language, uh, in particular that that son of God language that we both picked up, I think, in our sermons. Yeah, the Son of God uh, language was uh, important because it's the first time since the very first verse in Mark's Gospel that Son of God actually comes up. Of course, at Jesus' baptism, Jesus, uh, God the Father calls Jesus... You are my son. You are my son. And um, Jesus goes around calling himself the Son of Man. But as an expression, Son of God hasn't appeared since Mark chapter 1, 
verse 1. And it's kind of a feature of Mark's gospel. Yeah, it is. So let's just remind our listeners. So the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Yeah, one of the things that Mark does in his gospel is he's laid out from the very first verse what everything is about. In uh, Christianity Explored, and yeah, I got to uh, pretend it was my idea in the sermon on, <laughs> on Sunday, that, that it's like a newspaper headline. That uh, there's, a, there's a banner and it tells you what the rest of the story uh, is all about. And so Mark, to us, the reader, has already told us the answer uh, to the identity of Jesus. It's not a secret for us. It's been revealed to us in the very first uh, verse. And the rest of the uh, gospel really kind of works out what that title is all about. For me, it reminds me of that TV show Columbo. I'm maybe speaking to an older listening audience now on your podcast. I don't know what the demographics are of who listens, but... Uh, 45 to 49-year-old women are our biggest target audience. There we go. That's a ramming for. I, I, hopefully you might remember the TV show Columbo, late 70s through the mid-80s. Um, it was a, a crime a drama. You know, there was a, It was a murder mystery. But the big differentiating factor, I don't know if you remember the show, was that... Uh, the, they showed you in the very first scene of the show the murder happening. And then the rest of the show is the detective kind of working out what happened in that first scene. So it, that's completely the opposite to most crime shows where you kind of you don't know how, what's going on and you try and work it out through the clues by the end. In Columbo, the answer was given to you right at the beginning. And I think Mark's gospel is a little mm. bit like that as well. Mark has given us... The, uh, the answer, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that means that as the reader, we get to go through each of the stories right through Mark's gospel and go, well, yeah, okay, well, that makes sense. I can see why he's doing that. Oh, that makes perfect sense. And in some ways, that creates a bit of a, a differentiation between us as the reader and the characters in the story because they're still trying to work out who Jesus is. But we have the answer given to us already. So a couple of times on Sunday, I noticed in the questions Henry and I got, there was some uh, question about, well, how, how, how can they not understand this? And one of the features is, well, we've been told the answer at the very beginning and we can see how that plays out. So it makes perfect sense when Jesus goes and heals demons and then he uh, appoints 12 and then he um, corrects his family and corrects the uh, Pharisees as well. That's you know makes perfect sense because we know who he is. But the characters in the story... Are still working out those things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, now, one of the other things that we've explored in this podcast are more macro sort of structures. And so last week, we observed that in, in Mark chapter 2, up until chapter 3, verse 6, you've got this pattern of five different stories of growing opposition to Jesus with an envelope kind of thing at the end, at the beginning, at the end, with, with the, both the healing of the paralytic and the healing of the man with the withered hand in the synagogue at Capernaum. So you've got this kind of book. You, you guess you could say it was a it's five parts, so it's kind of like a Big Mac structure. <laughs> but, like but, but but Mark's not so famous for the Mark and Big Mac, is he? There, there's something that's quite characteristic about Mark in his telling of the gospel. Can you tell us about what, what is a Mark and sandwich and is there one in your passage and what should we be looking out for? Why, yes, Dave, there is one in our passage. I, I, what a Goodness surprise. gracious. Because <laughs> that would have been a very short well, It's never a very short podcast. So carry on. There we are. Yes. No, you're absolutely correct. Mark and Sandwich is where Mark starts with one story and then he goes to another story. 
but then he comes back to the first story again. So if you think about a sandwich, you've got the bread on the outsides and the meat mm. on the inside. And, you know, the, the, the filling is kind of what the sandwich is all about. It's kind of the, the central part of what's going on. And Mark uses this structure on a number of occasions through the gospel. Uh, things to look out for in, in coming weeks will be uh, where you might remember uh, Jairus's daughter is very sick, is on the verge of dying, and Jesus is on the way to going to her. And then the a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years episode happens. Uh, that that gets fixed, and then um, Jesus goes on to Jairus's daughter straight afterwards. Uh, perhaps in chapter 11, there's where Mark goes and sees the fig tree, and he curses the fig tree. Then he goes into the temple, and then he comes back out and sees the fig trees cursed. I, I think, Dave, you mentioned there's in one fact, yeah, next week. Yeah, I was looking um, in preparing for this week in uh, the parable of the sower. He, the, you begin with him telling the parable, uh, and then you get a scene with him and the disciples, and then he comes back and then explains the parables. But there's a there's another incident in the middle that is a bit of a, a key to understanding his teaching. Here we go. Well, we won't give anything away about what's no. coming this week. Spoiler. Spoiler alert. But there was one in our passage, Henry. Yeah, yeah. So that whole second half almost of it, um, from verse 20 to 35, has a big Mark and Sandwich because uh, what happens is in the first couple of verses, um, Jesus is, is in a house and his family, we start hearing about his family thinking that he's, uh, he's, he's gone crazy. And then we get all the stuff with the, the Pharisees and uh, them saying that he, he's a liar, that he's been um, casting out demons with Satan's power. And then straight after that, we come back and hear more about the family. So th- these st- two stories... Um, are clearly being brought together by this Mark and Sandwich. Uh, Mark is saying there's something going on here um, where we can understand them actually better together. And so how can we understand them better together? What does the what's the meat and the sandwich teach us? What's what's the what's the sandwich? What flavor? <laughs> what's the topping? I'll stop now until you keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the main focus of this section is who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And that's where Jesus clearly tells the teachers uh, that he has uh, come to break into the strong man's house and to, to take away uh, the possessions in his house. It's Jesus's way of saying that Satan, who thinks of himself as the king of the, uh, king of the world uh, and the king over all created things, uh, Jesus is going to come into his house and he's going to effectively bind him up, tie him down, so that then he is then free to be able to uh, to take back uh, to God what is in fact God's originally in the in the first place as well. So the teachers of the law misunderstand who Jesus is, and therefore they misunderstand his mission and his um, family as well. They they though they're connected to him have misunderstood who he is and what he's come to do too. And so we see that really intensely answered by Jesus in that middle section. And. As you're describing that to me, it sounds like it moves from a less intense misunderstanding on the outside through to a more intense misunderstanding on the inside with the op- with with the the accusations and blasphemous accusations of the of the Pharisees, and so it's an intense. It gets more intense on the way in, and then you get the strong man thing in the beginning. So so the meat, the tasty bit, the strong man parable. Yeah, I, th- I think so, and certainly the, that that's key to the message in there as well. You're absolutely right. The the, uh, the teachers really hate Jesus by this point, and I think he did a great job last week as you helped us to see the increasing 
kind of um, venom that's coming towards Jesus, um, culminating in them plotting Jesus's death on the Sabbath. You know, the irony of ironies that uh, that they don't want Jesus to heal and do good on the Sabbath, but by all means they can plot murder and uh, you know breaking the commandments, but also uh, you know uh, seeking to kill the, the 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 Son of God themselves. Their their anger towards Jesus is is very intensified and. We, we get that little clue in the passage that the teachers have come from Jerusalem. Uh, that's 170. It's not a short distance, yeah. <laughs> 170 kilometres <laughs> away. Um, so uh, we get the picture that these Pharisees have decided uh, they're going to plot uh, against Jesus. And so they're now following Jesus around to go to the towns to talk to the leaders. You can't trust this guy. He's a blasphemer. Don't listen to him. They're actually spreading the message. Uh, out as well. So it's not just a few isolated things. This is an intense campaign now against Jesus. They want him dead. They want everybody to to, to know he's a blasphemer and not to listen to him. Yeah. There is a funny thing there where straight before that, we've had this story of Jesus sending out all these people to preach the good news of the kingdom. And then we have the Pharisees going out and preaching you know, that, that Jesus is this liar, that Jesus is a blasphemer. We have these two messages going out that are in total opposition to each other. It, it's like they're preaching an anti-gospel mm. um, and like they're being anti-Christs, aren't they? And uh, I was thinking, doesn't that show you what was happening in the meantime? In the meantime, there's been journeys going back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem now where we were left with them plotting with the Herodians about killing Jesus, and you can see that while Jesus is going around doing these things, there's there's this activity now of growing opposition, such that people are even from Jerusalem going, "I'm going to go up and check out this guy," and and you've got it's it's like the the stick is in the ant's nest, and the, and there's the, they're not taking what Jesus is doing lightly. Yeah, and I think as we see that, we've got that whole question of Jesus' identity is there. Um, and I noticed uh, that interesting bit in verses 11 and 12. So when Jesus has then healed, um, he's driven out the demons, the impure spirits are there, and he then give, they declare, you are the son of God, but he gives them strict orders not to tell others about him. Seems in contrast to this whole, the message is going out or the message is not going out. Mm, it's this really interesting thing, isn't it, where um, it's almost, we, we call it the messianic secret, um, that, that Jesus is almost um, concealing his identity at certain times uh, in order to stop it from going out. Uh, I think we, we saw potentially one of the reasons um, a couple of weeks ago with the, the man who was healed with leprosy, where um, what the, the persons went out and started telling people meant that Jesus wasn't able to enter towns freely anymore. Um, so, so we saw that actually the message of who Jesus was going out meant that Jesus wasn't able to do what he wanted to do. Mm. Um, so, so we see this, this secret being held so that Jesus can do what he's, been, what he's come to do and what he's been called to do. Mm. And in particular, the Messianic secret is appropriate for the Jewish audience uh, in particular uh, because whenever he visits a Jewish town, that's the effect, isn't it? Uh, mm. When they start to think, oh, could this be the king or could this be connected to God, then uh, immediately... Uh, Jesus uh, wants to uh, keep things uh, quiet while the while the good news of the kingdom is is going out. Yet one of the things to look out for in the coming chapters will be when Jesus visits 
the Gentile areas, the, the, the places which are filled with people who aren't from a Jewish background, like, for example, chapter 5, the Decapolis, which is across the other side of the Jordan where Jesus crosses the lake and he's there at the Decapolis and after he heals, spoiler alert, the man with a legion of demons uh, inside of him, he says, go to your people and tell them all that God has done. Mm. Uh, it's a complete contrast between Jew and Gentile. In some ways, the Gentiles don't know uh, uh, the the God Yahweh, uh, and so in some ways he wants the gospel to go out to them so that they can see all the miracles and praise this creator God who's all around them. But to the Jews who know the uh, secrets to the Old Testament... Or who uh, should know in particular. ...and should recognise Jesus for who he is, he wants them to remain quiet and see what's going on. The only one that he doesn't is the leper at the end of chapter 1, and he says, go and testify to the priests. In Jerusalem, and so it's almost like the, the, let the hierarchy see this, let the leaders of the people, but but the rest of them are, are, are to be quiet. Okay, so we, we've looked at structural things and and big, big macro sort of mark. Uh, what is what are some of the key ideas or themes or words? Are there any other things that you um, that a good reader of Mark chapter three should observe? One of the things that. Uh, has to happen when you preach any sermon is that you need to work out, well, I just may not have time in the uh, the time allocated to be able to deal with everything in a passage. And so I think one of the things that in our discussion, Henry, we kind of thought maybe one of the things we could leave for the podcast would be a bit more about the uh, selection of the 12, mm. uh, and in particular uh, the number uh, and uh, why that's uh, important as well and then any other facts that we kind of come up with uh, along the way. So tell us about the 12. Yeah, well, the number 12 is really biblically important um, because back at the beginning of the Bible, back in Genesis, there were the 12 tribes of Israel, um, the, the 12 sons of Jacob who, who formed these 12 tribes. Um, the, the number 12 was almost symbolic for God's people. And so when, when we start to see, again, Jesus calling 12, we're starting to see, oh, Jesus is starting to form a new people a new, new God's people around him. Him is the centre. It's, uh, it's a really, really little clever device. I think as Christians we need to not go overboard with trying to find secret meanings in numbers, but some, sometimes one of the things that God does is links ideas mm. together by the use of the same number as well. So uh, there'll be interesting uh, in stories to come through Mark's Gospel, for example, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then he feeds the 4,000. And if you look at the geography of the area, when he feeds the 5,000, it's in a particularly Jewish area. And then he feeds the 4,000 uh, in a particularly Gentile uh, area as well. Same miracle in the same way. But you remember at the end, there's basketfuls left over. Now, when he feeds the people in the Jewish area, how many basketfuls are left over? Twelve. Twelve, correct. <laughs> uh, again, another pointer to the fact that God is doing uh, his work towards his people uh, just just to fill in the gap, the uh, number of basketfuls in the 4,000 is seven because that has a sort of a completeness, full kind of um, uh, uh, meaning to uh, to that as well. So the fact that um, Jesus picks 12 is not something that is uh, a coincidence or chance or something that he just kind of went, oh, you know, one more. Like he's actually distinctively picked 12 because of the connection to God's Old Testament plans for his people and a point afford to the fact that God's uh, great plan into the New Testament uh, continues, but has a bit of a, a junction. There's a new people 
that's being formed as well. It's not, and it's not like it is this sort of uber secret mystery, is it? Because it's not as if Israel didn't know that there were twelve tribes of Israel, and uh, and and I guess if we're going, you have you know um, Jacob who was renamed Israel, and he has his twelve sons that we hear about who they are, and then you have Jesus, and he picks twelve and he names them all, and you're kind of going, who's that Jesus saying he is? I mean, he's not. He's actually trying to make a statement, isn't he? And he's saying, well, I'm the new Israel, just like he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, like Israel was tempted in, it was had their time of testing in the wilderness for 40 years. You, you've got these connections where Jesus is not unsubtly saying, I'm the embodiment of what God's people are meant to be. I'm the true Israel. So so it's, it's a very significant thing, although, as you mentioned, you can't say everything on a Sunday and that that strong opposition theme and spiritual opposition and who do you say Jesus is is a very strong Thing and had to be done. So what 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 else have we got there in? Um, Can I give uh, a little shout out yeah. to Mark as a um, as a writer and a narrator? Mm. I just love the way sometimes he just drops little pieces of information along the way. Doesn't say anything more about them because he'll wait further into the story before you hear something. So I think immediately of back in chapter one where we hear this just this little phrase after John is put in prison, Jesus began his ministry, and immediately you're like. John was put in prison, but nothing more is said until you get up to chapter, I think it's six or something like that, and you uh, hear about uh, John's imprisonment at that point. In our chapter that we looked at today, did you notice when we went through all of the names of the 12, it finishes, of course, with Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Hmm. And it just leaves open the little um, Easter egg, so to speak, that's going to be opened up later into the uh, story. Thank you, Thank you. I'm sitting next to Dave Mears, uh, pun, the pun master Dave Mears. Yes, that is brilliant. <laughs> you did an Easter egg pun about Easter eggs. Wow. <laughs> next level. Oh, dear. Um, and so, Henry, I think you noticed something else as well. in. Mm, yeah, th- there's a really interesting thing that also um, I, I picked up in um, – Obviously, I, I can't yet read Greek. Um, maybe in the future I'll be able to. But, but the commentators were, were looking at something really interesting, uh, which was that in the Greek, the, the word there that, that says appointed, I think it is, um, actually says made. So there's this thing that Jesus is, well, that, that, that Mark is saying about something special that Jesus is doing. He's making 12. Um, like, First, that's in terms of him making the, the 12, like making the 12 tribes. He's, he's making God's people new. Um, but there's also this special thing that, that Jesus is doing, um, or that, that, that Mark is pointing that Jesus is doing, is comparing him to a certain someone else who can make something out of nothing. I think there's a big claim that Mark is making there about Jesus and who he is. So that clever selection of words that helps us to understand even more about Jesus' identity um, mm. as, you know, the son of God and, in fact, God himself. Mm. Yeah, excellent. That's really, really helpful. So uh, anything else we should have noticed? Well, Dave, you were uh, picking up on the fact when it comes to the family in the last story of uh, last of the episodes... We're having a very interesting microphone moment as we speak here. We've just had a blowout. But yes, while, while Andrew fixes my microphone, <laughs> I'm just going to mention one thing that I thought was really interesting. If you hear clangs in the background, just 
be amused because it's it's amusing where we are anyway. Um, but uh, the, at the very end, you'll notice that there were questions about how um, when Jesus' family comes and it says his mother and brothers came to him and and and, uh, and then he's told, oh, your mother, your mother and brothers uh, are after you. And and then Jesus says this interesting thing at the end. There he says, um, "Who are my mother and brothers and sisters?" It's basically looking to the people around him. He said, "These are my mother, brothers, and sisters." Now it's interesting that it was his mother and brother that came, but then he describes the people around him as mother, brother, and sisters. And going, there is a notable omission. Uh, so obviously he's basically saying the older women here are like my mothers and the, and the younger women and men are like my brothers and, and sisters. There's no father there. And that is because, in a sense, he's he's not going to leave space for anyone <laughs> who are his followers to claim to be his father. That's that's kind of like uh, um, secure territory. You're not, you're not going there. There's, there's a spiritual family and there is one father and that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think you were... Um, making an observation about that as well, I think, um, about the Father. Yeah, when you... In Matthew's uh, Gospel, I yeah, think. That's yeah, that's right. So uh, in the previous podcasts, we've talked about how it's actually quite joyful and quite helpful if we want to understand more about any particular story, particularly in what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, uh, where their stories are often quite closely aligned, although they have been written individually by them with their own different styles as well, um, that you get to go to the corresponding accounts of a particular incident uh, and um, and see how it's been written up by a different author. And it's interesting that Matthew also carries uh, this uh, story as well in, uh, in his gospel in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 12. And if you look at verses 22 to 50, you'll see the story of the uh, um, Jesus talking uh, to the, uh, the Pharisees uh, in very clever ways. And when you go uh, further on into the uh, story in verses 46 to 50, you'll see the story of where the um, where Jesus' mothers and brothers are looking for him uh, in particular. And Jesus says um, this, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. And so you see uh, in that particular account where Matthew has a real heart, particularly for a Jewish audience, uh, and talking uh, particularly about God in many times, many times he's talking about God as father to his people. Uh, here, Jesus, his words for Jesus are really amplified in that the father in question is clearly God. Yeah, it's almost as if he's taken, because we were talking about Mark and priority before this, the idea that Mark's gospel was written first, that Matthew and Luke used it. You, you, you could Now, it's speculative, but you could imagine that what Matthew's done is he's seen Mark's elusive statement where he doesn't shout from the rooftops that Father is missing, but it's quite obvious. And, and Matthew, who would have been there as well at the time, um, goes, oh, I don't want people to miss this. Uh, let's take Mark's been subtle, but I want to be less subtle and and make sure that it's explained what what Jesus means here. Um, and probably, you know, presumably, then Jesus actually did explain it. If you will go back to that time, but he's he's explaining it out there, so it's quite interesting. There are other Mark and distinctives uh, in this passage when you compare that to other uh, gospel accounts uh, as well. 
Yeah, well, well, one key one um, that, that we were talking about was actually in the the sending out of the 12. Um, that, that, that's actually a key distinction where Mark actually omits healing. Um, it, like the, the disciples are sent out to preach and to drive out demons, which is really interesting because Jesus has just spent the last couple of chapters healing people. Um, and, and so Andrew and I had a good chat about actually why is that? Why has Jesus um, not sent them out to to heal? Because in some of the other gospels, that they they record that actually Jesus did send them out to heal. And so there's this interesting thing here where Mark seems to be saying, well, there's something about healing that's going on at this time. Um, I, I was thinking about it where um, one one story before he sends them out, um, you have all of these people just coming at him. Um, coming to him for his healing. They're, they're not coming because they, they want to find out more about who Jesus is. They're, they're not interested in Jesus' identity. They're just interested in um, get, getting a healing, get, getting to see some miracles. And then the story before that, well, a healing means that um, the the Pharisees and the Herodians get ready to kill him. Mm. Like the, There's something really interesting going on about healing there that Mark in particular wants to make sure that we notice. And by leaving it out, he's making that uh, mm. clearer as well. I think also distinctively uh, in this particular section, as he exercises demons and as he does his preaching ministry, that's where his sonship in front of the in front of God, that he's the son of God, uh, is most clear. And so, almost uh, he's almost emphasizing by saying, "Go out and preach and uh, remove demons from people." He's uh, clearly talking about their proclamation of the kingdom of God with Jesus as the son of God at the heart of it uh, as well. Now, I actually, uh, in my sermon, throwing it back towards my uh, hosts uh, today, had a question for you as well, because we've been talking about how Jesus said, as he as he looked around, and who are my brother and mother and sisters? Uh, and um, for us, as we read, particularly through the uh, pastoral epistles we're told that this is how we should regard each other as church when we gather together uh, as well uh, i wanted to ask um, for your advice uh, as we apply a passage like this when it when we see whoever does the the will of god being jesus's brother and mother and and uh sister uh how is it that uh, as a church family here at christ church um we should think of each other as family yeah, it's, it is a good question and it's an important thing to think through because the most common description you'll have of Christians in the New Testament is either as brothers and sisters or as beloved. And, uh, and, and that's the way they speak to one an, of one another and address one another in letters. That's sometimes when, whether that's Paul addressing people he's even met before or he hasn't met before. And th- there is a, a, a f- familial language that even um, in, in church history caused the early church a lot of problems because they kept hearing about Christians calling each other brothers and sisters and then noticed that some of them were married and went, oh, yuck, that's sick. And, and, and they got charged with incest and things like that when it was just because they had a and, – and I think that if you're willing to be charged with incest and persist with calling yourselves brothers and sisters, it's a very, very special term for you and, and for early Christians. That, so, so when we talk about, talk about family news on a, on a Sunday or family time, um, 
then then it's it's not there just to kind of sound hey we're a lovable group here and and uh, and a soft way of talking about come on you're giving the notices let's be real it's actually a point of reminding this is why we're interested in what's going on amongst us because spiritually we are a family we are united by the same spirit um, we we are as as Jesus says in your passage there that we just looked at, it is the ones who have done the will of the Father. Uh, we share the same Father through the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we actually have a real relationship, a spiritual relationship that will go beyond being a spiritual relationship in eternity because uh, where even some family relationships um, will be put asunder, in fact, um, and even that there is no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven, but we will be brothers and sisters forever. And so there is something deep and profound that we don't want to ever lose in our language um, uh, because we sort of feel awkward about it. It's actually a profound privilege that we have as Christians. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So so what does it mean? You know, uh, how do you how do you think through that? It means that we treat one another with purity. So that's one of the things that the, the New Testament um, pulls out. I was trying to maybe search for the passage but it's it's where where, where to treat um uh young younger um uh women as as sisters younger brother as, as brothers you know, older women as as um mothers and older men as fathers in that sort of spiritual sense jesus didn't say that of others but we can and and so there's that sense where um there there is a a a, a deep way of understanding the people that are sitting next to you that that is um, above just we're associates who happen to have some similar convictions. We've got a deeper connection than that. Um, it means that we're with, with talking about each other as family. It means there's commitment that we have to one another like you have in a family. It's not, it's, um, uh, if we aren't committed to one another, we testify to the lie of that language. We, we actually are to um, take responsibility for one another like you would take responsibility for one another in a family you're the one who go goes out and gets in your car and goes picks the person up because you're not going to have them because they're family you know out, out in the middle of nowhere with without anything you you um, are watchful and watch over one another you're protective of danger and, and you can see all of these things pan out in if you read the new testaments about about how we're to speak the truth in love to one another how we're to bear one another's burdens and and all of those Christian virtues you can associate with the way families care and love for one another and that that whole blood is thicker than water kind of thing where where you're what you're willing to put up with from your family and persevere with and work to resolve is the same mentality you had to have in 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 church you can't just sit there and be happy you wouldn't be happy with an estranged relationship with your brother or sister, your earthly brother or sister, or it, it's it, you would consider it a tragedy. You you would hope that one day you could resolve it. That's the same mentality that we're to have mm. as as Christians. And I think in that it's one of the things that has an expansive view. I think we've been taught as a society to be quite individualistic and we can be very family oriented with my family of origin and there's a rightness the bible will talk about the fact that you know if you don't care for your elderly parents then you're denying jesus in the way that you're acting but there's also a sense in which because we've been called as christian family to one another that there's the way that we do that um, i think personally of the examples that i've had of christian brothers and sisters that have invited me into their family um, so that 
family dinners isn't the exclusive thing of the family, the nuclear family of five, but I can have a seat at the table um, and that I'm valued as a member of that family, even though I'm not biologically related to them, but through Christ, I am family with them. And so I think it changes the way that we think about how do we do things. I like to think of it as how much of an open door and open table policy can we have such that we actually have a willingness to invite others into our homes and into our lives and share with them. And we do that with people whether we're going to get the reciprocal relation, reciprocal invitation back because they're my brother and sister in Christ. Yeah, it raises up the, the, the value of hospitality and, and the reasons for it. It makes you think about how you treat new people or, or, um, or, or even not just new people, but people who are part of your church who seem to be by themselves or something. You know, if I saw one of my um, sons alone and no one talking with them, I would, I would want to go over and I'd want to sit with them and go, well, I'll sit with you, right? Mm. Because um, I'm not going to have that happen to, to one of my sons or if it, if it was a sibling, it would be the same thing. Um, and you go, well, hang on a minute. When, a, um, when one of my church members... I'm seeing them and no one's going up and speaking to them. Yes, there is the newcomer, but also the person who doesn't have as big a, a friend, friendship group as we as you might or things like that. And you're going, it's, think of it as your actual physical brother or sister or a relative who's sitting there and just being excluded or being isolated. How, how That's intolerable. And you would go, no, I will go over and, well, they are your brother and sister in Christ. Just walk across the room and even if no one else is doing it, you spend time with them because that's what families do mm. and that's what people who, who care for one another are like that. And and it's why, you know, you get that, that massive um, uh, sympathetic tone that you get in the scriptures of, you know, um, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. It all goes together in that just wonderful family of God's people mm that this is the way we go. We're connected to one another and we're not going to be embarrassed about that. And it also means we're going to have family fights. <laughs> but but because um, sometimes when family, you're brought close together, even if you're different and you don't, you know, everyone, most people have had some sort of sibling or, or know people have had siblings that are just way, way different and you just don't kind of get each other. Well, you're still brothers and sisters or still things like that. Uh, if I can put my mission slant on this as well, I, I, I think that as we're looking to have um, more people come and uh, connect with uh, Jesus and connect with our church, what we're looking for is to, to find our long lost brothers and sisters as well like uh that's why we want as many spaces in the church not at the yet moment christians that's it exactly yep. right we want not yet brothers and sisters exactly yeah. right yeah but they're out there and we when they come in and they and they come to know jesus they go from um being outside the family to being a brother or sister in christ from uh, from where they come from and that's that's our great hope here at Christchurch that we 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 want as many people in our area to, to, to come to connect with Jesus and uh, uh, be our brothers and sisters in that regard. That sounds like a great note to finish on. So I've been Dave. I've been Mandy. Um, and I've been Henry. <laughs> and after Henry, I've been Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today on Sermon Seasonings. We look forward to seeing you again uh, next week when we dive into Mark chapter 4.